This morning I'd like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net, which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. And those are the words of David. Father, you are the one who has rescued us. You are the God of truth. And we're so grateful because we live in a world of conflicting opinions and uh, a great deal of false information going around and all kinds of opinions about what is true. And yet, Lord, we know that in you and in your word is truth. And Lord, I pray that we will rest in that truth. And Father, we'll be strong in that truth and unshaken by the winds that blow from every direction in the world in which we live now. Father, I pray that you will open our eyes to understand what you have said to us through the life of David. I pray, Father, that you will encourage each one of us in our walk with you. I ask you to meet the needs represented in this room this hour. For those that need a physical touch, Lord, I pray you'll bring healing. And for those who are suffering emotionally or spiritually in some way, Lord, touch each one. I ask that you will be present throughout this complex this morning in every class and in the service that is occurring concurrently and the one that will come later. And Lord, as we remember this day, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem, which we have just been studying, was captured by David uh, 3,000 years ago. And yet a 1,000 years later, the son of David would walk triumphantly through those gates yet to be within a few days crucified. And we understand that that was part of your great plan and your sacrifice for us. And for that, we give you thanks. And ask now, Lord, that you will be our strength and help as we study together in Christ's name. Amen. We're beginning the sixth chapter of the book of 2 Samuel. Today, a very, very significant event and one that sometimes causes people consternation as they look at this particular passage. So let me read the first 11 verses of chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Baal of Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they placed the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it to the house from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the cart. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. 
And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. This chapter contains at least two main themes. One of those themes is David's desire to bring revival to Israel, revival of the true worship of Yahweh. And the second theme is the holiness and sanctity of God as represented even in all those things such as the ark which represented his presence on earth. After the death of Samuel and during the subsequent reign of the king by the name of Saul, apostasy swept through the land of Israel. Now the theme of apostasy is one that you find frequently in the Old Testament. It seems like Israel swings from wholehearted commitment to God to apostasy, wholehearted commitment to God and apostasy. Kind of a roller coaster uh, existence, it seems. David knew that God had given him the kingship because Saul was a man of disobedience and he had rejected the word of the Lord and therefore David became very, very passionate about leading his people back to genuine faith. Earlier in the 11th century BC, and that's the century we're talking about at this point, at the end of the judgeship of Eli, the ark had been captured by the Philistines as a result of the battle of Aphek. And we've talked about this before, so we won't go back to that, but Aphek is located right here. It's right where the hill country joins the plain of the coast there. And there was a big battle, you remember, and the Israelites took the ark up as hopefully using it as a good luck charm, I suppose you could say. And they not only lost the battle, but the ark was captured by the Philistines. And you will remember that precipitated the death of Eli. As soon as he heard that the ark of the covenant had been captured, he fell off his bench and broke his neck and died. At the same time, this event propelled Samuel into the position of prophet and shofat, or judge, in Israel. You may remember also that for a period of seven months, the ark was transported between city and city of the Philistines. And in each city that the ark came to rest, devastation came upon that city. So they moved it on to the next city. And pretty soon the Philistines were getting paranoid about uh, the, this ark coming their way. And so they finally sent it back to Israel. You remember they put it on an ark, uh, put it on a cart, and the cart was to be drawn by two milk cows who, were, who had just had calves. And so they, they sent the cart off and knowing that, you know, if God of Israel's real, that cart will be taken where it's supposed to be taken because those cows are not going to want to leave their calves. And, and, but they left their calves lowing the whole way, you remember, complaining the whole way. But they went all the way off into Israel and uh, carried the ark there. And you remember that it came to the town of Beth Shemesh, which is located, where, where am I at here? Right here. Beth Shemesh, which is right here. It's, it's just up the Sorek Valley a little ways here, not too far from David, where David fought 
Goliath. And uh, you remember that the people of Beth Shemesh came out. Oh, the ark is coming. And the scripture makes it quite clear. They were more curious than they were reverent. And they looked into the ark. Well, let's, let's go to that passage because it's a very significant passage for us. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 6, at the end, near the end of 1 Samuel chapter 6, the ark has come to the city of Beth Shemesh. And he, that is the Lord, this is verse 19, struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down all the people, 50,070 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? To whom shall he go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirith-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Then the men of Kirith-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came about from the day that the ark remained at Kirith-Jerim that the, the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The return of the ark brought great devastation because people had lost their reverence for God and for the ark which represented the name. And God restored a degree of reverence, at least a degree of fear, by striking dead these people who had dishonored his name by treating the ark as if it were a curio uh, rather than the representation of his presence here on earth. The 20 years referred to in that passage probably refers to the period between that event and the beginning of the reign of Saul. Possibly a little ways into the reign of Saul, it's not really certain. Except for one brief occasion, Saul had ignored the ark of the Lord. And we'll, we'll talk about that brief occasion a little bit later. But other than that one occasion, Saul pretended as if there wasn't any ark. He had no concern for the ark. He had no concern for the Lord. It, the Lord was not important uh, to him. And so the 40 years of Saul's reign needs to be added to that 20, to, except for whatever degree those, those two may blend into each other, we, we don't know. But at the outside, we're talking about 20 plus 40, which would be 60 years that the ark has been sitting down there away from the place where it ought to have been. How long was this into David's reign before the event which we've read about in the sixth chapter occurred? Well, it didn't occur during the time that David was ruling over Judah only, and that was seven and a half years into his total of 40 years as king. And, and certainly it was beyond the time that he had captured Jerusalem and he had already become king over all Israel. So it's very probable we could add 10 to the 60, making 70 years, possibly the full length of time that the ark had been displaced there in Kiriath-Jerim. Consequently, a whole generation had grown up and into their senior years without ever knowing the ark as the central object of focus for the worship of the Lord God of Israel. David intended to remedy that situation. This was not going to prevail any longer if David 
could accomplish a change. And that what's, is what brings about the, the whole event as we read about it here in the sixth chapter. In order for us to get a complete picture of these events which are described in these first 11 verses of this chapter, I think it's important for us to look at the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. In 1 Chronicles chapter 13, beginning at the first verse of the chapter, Then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities and pasture lands, that they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel together, from the Shihor of Egypt even to the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kirith-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bela, that is to say Kirith-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. And they carried the ark of the Lord of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs and with lyres and harps and tambourines, cymbals and with trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kedon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he had put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and he called that place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. The two together give us a fuller picture of what took place here uh, on that little stretch of land between Kirith-Jerim and Jerusalem. One of the first things we discover when we add in the first Chronicles passage is that David did not issue an executive order. He didn't say, we're going to go down and get the ark. Instead, he consulted with the military and tribal leaders. He, he called together a kind of a parliament, if you will, and he asked them if this would be a good thing to do, if they would be in agreement, if they would be willing to help in bringing the ark of God to Jerusalem. And then he endeavored to entice or to invite the entire populace to take part in this and specifically the priests and the Levites that were living within Israel. And what you notice in this passage which doesn't, uh, which uh, it isn't mentioned in 1 Samuel is that he made the condemning observation that the ark had been ignored throughout the entire reign of Saul. Saul reigned 40 years throughout 40 years. I mean, that's a whole generation. The ark was ignored, was not central to the worship of Israel. It's obvious from this passage that he received a positive response from the people, from the leaders, 
uh, of Israel. And so David called for the people to be assembled. And we, we're also given in First Chronicles a description of where they're to be assembled from. And it's a very unusual statement. He says, from Shihor of Egypt to the entrance of Hamath. <laughs> what does he mean by that? Does, is, is this just another way of saying from Dan to Beersheba, which is the more common parameters of the ancient name? Actually, Shihor to entrance of Hamath would be further than from Dan to Beersheba. Does he just mean by this from all the corners of Israel, from everywhere where Israel lives? It could be, though, he means the expression literally. And if he means it literally, it's, it's very interesting because the Shihor of Egypt, the term Shihor, which we see here, means the waters of Horus. That's the Nile. Horus was the falcon god of Israel. He was a representation of the sun god of Egypt, which went by various names. According to Egyptian tradition, Horus was the child of Osiris and Isis, who were a brother and sister god who were married, and uh, Isis was a very pagan <laughs> Egyptian goddess. But anyway, they had this, this child whose name is Horus, and there's a lot of wall drawings in Egypt where it shows uh, Isis sitting with little Horus on her knee. Kind of a Madonna and child concept, you know? Uh, you go through the pagan religions of the world and you will discover very many similarities because Osiris also was a god of death and resurrection. And you think, where does this come from? It comes from the pit of hell. Satan wants to replicate the truths of Scripture as much as he can within the false world of, you know, of false religion. So that, you know, it's like most Muslims, they think Jesus really was born of a virgin. They really believe Jesus was resurrected from the dead. They don't deny those things. And you think, oh, well, you know, they must be pretty close to Christian, but they deny the very deity of Jesus Christ, which is essential to the whole thing. And so the enemy is very, very subtle here. But Horus was symbolized by the falcon. And it was believed that every time a new pharaoh was born, that, that Horus was incarnated within the new pharaoh. And so he was a god king in Egypt. And so from the waters of Horus, does that mean there were still some Israelites living in the land of Goshen? Well, don't know. But many believe that what he's really referring to here is a wadi, which whenever it rains does flow here, which is called the Wadi al-Arish, which is sometimes called the Brook of Egypt. And sometimes that is considered to be really the southern border of the land that had been given to Israel. In fact, some believe that when it said from the Great River, which is the Euphrates up here, to the River of Egypt, it meant this particular wadi down here rather than the Nile River. But whatever the case may be, David is saying, let's get the Israelites from all the way to the south and all the way to the north. Uh, here's Mount Hermon, or Hermon if you prefer. And over here is the, uh, right through here comes a river called the Latani River. The Latani River flows south through <coughs> Lebanon. And if you enter that valley, you can go north up that valley. And when you get towards the upper reaches of the Latani, you move right into the upper reaches of the Orontes River, which flows on up and goes out to sea in what is today uh, southern Turkey. And the Orontes is a very significant river because the, um, the ancient city of Antioch is on, that, is on that river. And Antioch, of course, is where the first missionaries were sent out by the church and, and where they were first followers of Christ were first called Christians. 
and Hamath is in the Orontes Valley. It's actually off this map up here a little ways. And so the Latani, which, which can, you can follow it up and then go into the Orontes, which goes the opposite direction, that could be the entrance of Hamath. So that's a little bit beyond Dan here, right up in here, say. So if it's from here to here, it, we're just talking about a little larger parameters to Israel than the traditional Dan to Beersheba. From 2 Samuel, we discovered that 30,000 people take part in this, this celebration of bringing the ark from Kirith-Jerim towards Jerusalem. Most of them, of course, were probably uh, tribal leaders of Israel. They were the officers, maybe the entire army of David, we don't know, but a large number of individuals. To, to carry the ark the 10 miles from Kirith-Jerim here to Jerusalem, it's only about 10 miles between, between the two places. Kirith-Jerim, I mean city of the forests. This is um, an old city in uh, Israel, in the land of Palestine, Canaan. But you'll notice that in both 1 Samuel and in 2 uh, Samuel and 1 Chronicles, the city is given another name. It's called Baal Judah or Bela. And that's very interesting because Baal Judah means Lord of Judah. And Bela is the feminine form of Baal. Baal means master or lord. And so Bela means mistress. What does all this mean? It seems to imply either that the impact of the old Gibeonites who used to live here in Kirith-Jerim is being alluded to by alluding to the Baal that was worshipped by the Gibeonites before this area was conquered by Israel, or it could mean that in spite of the fact that the Ark of the Covenant had been resident in that city for possibly as long as 70 years, that it still was the center of the worship of Baal even at that time. That's a possibility. Both the chronicler and the author of 2 Samuel felt it was very necessary for them to highlight the significance of the Ark. Why, what is all this fuss about bringing a little box up from one city to another city? What, what is the big deal here about this? Why are 30,000 people taking part in this great celebration? It was the Ark of Elohim. And of course, to, to Israel, Elohim was personified in the name Yahweh. And so we're talking about the Ark where the name was focused. The name Yahweh was focused. And the implication here is that the Ark and the name are synonymous. The use of the name, capital N-A-M-E here, in reference to the ark, implies focus on the reality of who Yahweh really is. Sort of an imminence of Yahweh, not simply a transcendence of Yahweh. And it seems to also imply the totality of the personality of God. Walter Kaiser, who is a commentator, uh, makes this comment about this. He said, in some passages, Shem Yahweh, which is the name, is so inextricably bound up with the being of God that it functions almost like an appearance of God, like a theophany. The name, uh, the name of God also signifies the whole self-disclosure of God in His holiness and in His truth. So what, what the writers are trying to do is emphasize that the Ark of the Covenant represents the focus of God in all that He is 
here on earth. It's, it's sort of like an incarnation of God. And this is, of course, before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And, and it has to be viewed, therefore, as much more holy and, and an object of so much greater reverence. And, and the use of the name Yahweh is so much above the use of any name that we might use. You know, we call ourselves Bill and Bob and, and Mary and Sally. But, but those words, those, those things that are applied to us, do not have the same meaning. Because there are many people with the same name. And so if I were to say, Bob... That could mean a lot of people pop into my mind when I say the name Bob, you know. But when you say Yahweh, there's one and only one Yahweh, name above all other names. And, and the, the, this, this was to give sanctity to the ark above all other objects on this planet. So all this emphasis on the name was intended to underscore the sense of profound awe and respect that should be accorded to the ark. I like the word awe, but it's been very much uh, diminished in our society. Uh, we call everything awesome, and, and, which is ridiculous, uh, because there's no, nothing that is awesome but God alone. A lot of things are great and nice and you know, so forth, maybe superior performance, but it's not awesome. Only God is awesome. Only God inspires our utter awe and respect and reverence. In their enthusiasm, however, David and the 30,000 failed to remember a very basic command. The ark was to be moved by poles thrust through the rings that were on the four corners of the ark, and it was to be carried by foot by Levites only. It was not to be moved by any other method. Instead, they had used the same dubious method by which the Philistines had sent the ark back to Israel uh, over a half a century before in a cart pulled by oxen. Oxen this time rather than, than milk cows. But the concept is the same. And so rather than what does God say, they did what the Philistines had done. Oh, that's a good thing to copy. You know, to me it's like so much in our Christian community today, we ape the world, you know, because... I'm going to step on a lot of toes here, but because the world likes rock and roll, we've got to have rock and roll Christian music. I mean, how absurd. We, we, you know, why, why does Christianity always have to follow? We should be a leader in what is truth. And we should not be guided by the culture in which we live. The ark had resided in the house of Abinadab. Abinadab means, my father is generous. In Kiriath Jerim, for a long time now, as, as I've said, possibly as many as 70 years. And the scripture tells us that he had dedicated his son Eliezer to service the ark. According to the scripture, the only time in that whole period which the ark of the covenant left Abinadab's house was for a brief moment during early in Saul's reign when he was facing the Philistines and he didn't know what to do, so he said, bring the ark, and he tried to get God, because the ark was there, to tell him what he should do, and God was dead silent. You cannot twist God's arm to speak, especially when your heart is full of sin, as Saul's was. Abinadab and Eliezer certainly are dead now, especially if, if 70 years is the correct number, or even if 50 years is the correct number. We're talking about a long time. And so Abinadab and Eliezer are most likely dead. And so who are 
Ahio Anuza. Well, the scripture says sons of Abinadab. Well, whenever you see sons of in scripture, that simply means descendants of. It could be his sons. Maybe he had very young sons that uh, might still have been alive, and now we're pretty old characters. But it's most likely grandsons, actually, here that are responsible for the ark here. Brotherly and strength. That's their names. Ahio, brotherly, Uzzah, strength. They were given the honor of leading this ox cart because they were probably still responsible for, for taking care of the ark while it was in their father or grandfather's uh, house there at Kirith Jerim. And so as the ark began its journey from Kirith Jerim to Jerusalem, one of the men led the oxen, the other of, of them, the other of the brothers, walked alongside the cart. Not a good position to be in. This was a very joyous celebration. We have to put ourselves there. I mean, this, they were hooping it up here. This was clearly a joyous occasion. And amongst the 30,000 that had accompanied David to, in this great parade, were many, many musicians. And they were accompanying the singing of praises to God. I think it was a great prayer and praise service. The instruments were, there are two lists given to us. Most of the instruments are named the same in both. The scripture tells us in 2 Samuel that there were instruments made of fir or cypress wood. That's probably in reference to the kinner, the lyre, and the nebel, which, which is translated harp here, but when you see the word harp, you know, if I, whenever I see harp, I see that thing, you know, pull it back and you play the strings. Obviously, that's not what we're talking about here. It's more like a lute, more like a small-scale guitar uh, that is being referred to here. Uh, in addition, there were tambourines and uh, castanets is the translation. It, it literally, literally means rattles. And then small cymbals that were used. First Chronicles adds trumpets. And of course, when usually when we see the word trumpet, uh, the, the Hebrew word is shofar, but that is not the word used here. It's a different word which is, refers to the small, or actually long-necked silver trumpets that belled out on the end, much of what we us usually see in movies, you know, where they're kind of deal, you know. And, and that is, was a very common form of trumpet in the ancient world for celebration, and that is what is referred to here. There may have been shofars as well, the ram's horn, but the scripture does not mention them. In order to understand the great enthusiasm being expressed here, we must remember these things. First, Israel was finally united under a strong and godly king. Not a king whom they were not really certain about, like Saul, who was very territorial and, and very family-oriented and hired all of his own family to be his, you know, his court. But a man who had killed Goliath, a man who had led Israel in victory after victory, a man who, who wanted to unite the nation as one. Secondly, their, their deadly enemies, enemies, the Philistines, had just been routed twice, routed, driven off in utter chaos, and their gods had been burned by David. And thirdly, they had found a strong and mutually acceptable capital. A capital that didn't belong, hadn't belonged to one tribe or another, but it belonged to pagans and, and was now taken into the camp and, and was a little bit more central to the nation. And then fourthly, the ark. Certainly there were those in Israel who longed for the true worship. 
And the Ark of the Covenant was finally being restored to its central position in the worship of the God of Israel. Things were looking up for the nation, and they were celebrating. Obviously, there was great joy as the instruments were, or were playing, and psalms of praise were being loudly sung to the God of Israel. It was the ecstasy of the moment, the total abandonment to emotion that made what happened next so deflating and so perplexing, like a great giant bucket of cold water dumped on the whole 30,000 people at once. As the great procession reached the threshing floor of Nacon, tragedy struck. Totally unforeseen tragedy. Just think, everybody must have perceived that God was, was deliriously happy with what they were doing. Who's Nacon? Is Nacon even a who? Well, some say that this was a man whose threshing floor they arrived at. This is the only place the name is ever used in Scripture, so we have no idea who he was if he was a who. Nacon, uh, the root word, means steadfast. That'd be a good name. But most scholars, or I should say at least many scholars, don't think that Nacon refers to the name of a man at all, but that it comes from the verb naka, which means to smite. And it was at this place that Uzzah was smitten of God, and therefore this is the place of the smiting, Nacon. This is in spite of the fact that David would name the place Perez Uzzah, which means the breakthrough of the Lord onto Uzzah. But what's interesting is, you, you probably didn't note this because you didn't get a chance to really study it, but if you remember in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, the word Nacon was not used. It was Kaidan was used instead. Kaidan means disaster. So if you kind of cross-reference these two things, disaster, smitten, it begins to look all the more like we're not talking about somebody here at all. We're talking about a name that was applied to this place because of this disaster which occurred at that moment. Exact location? We don't know. We've got it narrowed down, of course, obviously, because Kirith Jerim is here and Jerusalem is here and it's in between, <laughs> somewhere in between. And, and I think they had been celebrating for a while. So, you know, to say it was five miles from Jerusalem, I think is a very reasonable estimation. So it wasn't too far to the west of Jerusalem that this event transpired. Due to the roughness of the terrain, the oxen nearly upset the ark, the scripture says. In order to steady it, because he thought it might fall, Uzzah, whose name meant strength, reached up, grabbed hold of the ark. Instantly, he dropped dead, and the celebrants were thunderstruck. I mean, just think, you're shouting, you're praising, and all of a sudden, <coughs> what does it make one think about the God you're worshiping? It was obvious that it wasn't because he was run over by the ark. It was because he had touched the ark that he had died instantly on the spot. And verse 7 tells us that the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down for his irreverence. The literal meaning of the word, Hebrew word there is for his error, for his sin. Uzzah had never touched the ark before. We know that because he was still alive. But now he did. He dared to reach out and touch the ark which I think tells us that there was a basic lack of knowledge or lack of reverence on the part of Uzzah and certainly in some small way on the part of David. Because David will later perceive that it was his error, his failure, that brought about the death 
of Uzzah. Well, I have some things I want to say about this because the application of this I think is significant to our day and age. And so we don't have time to do it today, so we'll leave it off there and in two weeks we'll <laughs> I'll leave you hanging. 